fiber-rich foods or prebiotics are the number one gut-healthy thing you're not eating enough of. According to the USDA, more than 90% of women and 97% of men do not meet their recommended intakes for dietary fiber. Supergut makes getting this essential nutrient back into your diet easy and delicious with award-winning foods that are clinically proven to boost gut health and all that comes with it. Go to supergut.com and use code Ethan to save 20% on your first order. That's S-U-P-E-R-G-U-T dot com, code Ethan, to save 20% on your first order. Oh, look, there's a festive plant, Matt. Look. Yes, there is. It must be Christmas. It, yes, it looks quite a nice... It is very nice. It's a poinsettia. Is that which, what they are? Which you buy at Christmas. It's beautifully green and very red. And where did you put that onto the Christmas table? Well, you, you put it anywhere in your house, Matt. Oh, right, you okay. like. You put yes. it on a table, you can put it on a shelf, <laughs> you could put it on... Uh, on the stairs. Flat surface, yeah. Yeah, you can yeah. put it on the cistern in your toilet. I mean, sale. The thing about a yeah. flower in a pot is it's a very flexible thing and you can actually put it almost anywhere. Almost anywhere. There yeah. you go. Well, yes, I, I'm, I'm very Bedside happy. Bedside table. Yes, no, please name other flat surfaces. In the, the steps to, into to the garden. In your house. <laughs> uh, anyway, and we have some crackers. Yes, we do. Mm-hmm. Wow. Should we pull the pot? Let's, let's pull it. Let's make you can pull. There we go. I mean, this is... Cheap radio. It is. Atmospheric. There you go. You could have put that on and the sound effects did. <laughs> right. Oh, we have to put the hat on as well, do we? I'm just reading a joke. Did you hear that E.L. James is working on a festive novel? It's called Fifty Shades of Slay. Slay! Oh, I love it. I love the puns. Okay, you can pull mine. Here's one. Pardon okay. expression. Uh, I've no. won that one as well. You've won that one as well. That's Great. Ridiculous. Okay, let's have a look at the joke. Um, I heard Santa was also trying to publish a novel, but his publisher rejected it because no one could understand it. He'd written it using the alphabet. Alphabet. Okay, superb. It's a bonus one. Oh, really? <clears throat> I was at a hotel over the weekend which was hosting a chess convention. Whilst I was waiting in the lobby, all these players were milling around bragging about the games they'd won. I tell you, by the end of my stay, I was pretty sick of chestnuts boasting in an open foyer. <laughs> oh, <clears throat> the layup to that. Good work. Yeah, that. OK. Uh, do you want another one? I've got another one here. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, and I, I like the layup to this one as well. My friend <laughs> is a Santa impersonator at one of those big department stores in London. And last year, after a long shift, he fell asleep on the way home and woke up at the end of the line, all discombobulated. He called me at 1am for me to come and pick him up. I tell you, that guy is a... Lost claws, lost claws. Everyone, you'll be hearing, you'll be hearing that again in the yep. Matt Williams house <laughs> over Christmas. Uh, so, twenty twenty two coming to a close. We thought we'd do what is compulsory for all radio shows and all podcasts is to look back on some of our podcast highlights for the year. That is for a number of reasons. One, it's very entertaining. Yes. Two. There's no bugger around. So <laughs> no, sorry. basically this will fill a gap <laughs> between now and then. No one's doing interviews. So to kick us off, here's broadcaster Justin Webb. Oh, yeah. Imhoff Radio 4 joined us back in February. Here he is recalling some of his early childhood memories. Can we start just where you 
begin the book with with this. I mean, it's the most extraordinary, attention grabbing yeah. uh, opening chapter where you talk about. Uh, I think you're six or seven years old and you're at the seaside. Can you just tell us that story? I'm six or seven years old at the seaside. My stepfather is swimming out to sea. And I distinctly remember wanting him not to be able to swim back. And it wasn't a kind of violent, sudden feeling. It was just when I saw the waves going over his head, he was actually quite a strong swimmer. He'd swum quite a long way out I remember thinking, goodness, I hope that's it, and he doesn't come back in. And that was um, certainly one of the oddnesses of my childhood. I lived with a stepfather who um, uh, was um, mentally ill and did me no harm and did my mum no harm, but was separate from us. And in the 1970s, that was a huge deal, that kind of business of dealing in a family with mental illness, but also dealing with the idea as a child that you had in your house someone who you didn't who didn't belong there. And that was something that my my mother encouraged. So yeah, that was that is how the book starts and it's how it is one of my earliest memories actually, that that memory of wanting him not to be there. And just to set the tone for a lot of the book Justin, you you talk about how you remember that a lot of the time at home you were walking on eggshells and that your mother was unhappy and that you needed to be wonderful. Could you just explain a bit about those eggshells you were walking on? And I think this is something that a lot of people in my circumstances or similar circumstances find. You grow up as a child, and I see this with my own kids who've grown up relatively normally with each other and in a, in a relatively happy home. But in homes that are intense, the business of being a child is not possible. You can't have the normal tantrums. You can't have the normal breakdowns. You can't have the normal fun because constantly you are subliminally, you don't know this at the time, but looking back on it, subliminally, you know that you are vital in keeping the whole show on the road. And that puts you in a position, a kind of adult position, of having to deal with stuff that no child should should have to deal with. And I, I looking back on it and reading the letters I used to send home from boarding school and all the rest of it, I, I was um, in a position of performing, actually, for my mother, um, from a really early age. And it just fascinates me. And again, the, the book, to be absolutely clear, the book is not an angry book. Um, I hope it's funny in bits. It's, and it's certainly not an attack on my dear, wonderful mum or indeed on anyone else. But there is this kind of sense in which you realise as you get older, my goodness, there are ways of growing up that are not proper childhood. And that, that was certainly the case for me. And potentially um, it has an effect on you as an adult, which which I think, you know, we're, we're all messed up, as Larkin didn't quite say, he used a, a, a tougher word, but we are all messed up by our, our, our parents, so this is certainly not unique to me. Your circumstances mould you. and and But I, I do think in that circumstance where you are looking after a parent, a, parent, a parent's relationship is so intense, it does have a lifelong effect. 
Justin Webb there talking to us back in February about his book, The Gift of Radio. Indeed. Next up, uh, one of my favourite guests this year, Marina Hyde, uh, who came into the studio in November to talk about her book of columns and answer some questions, including one from her friend and broadcaster, Sean Keaveney. Uh, next, we have a question in the form of a voice note. Oh. Uh, this is from Sean Keaveney, who's, oh. a big, who's a big fan. Hello, Sean Keaveney here. Broadcaster without portfolio. Um, what to ask? Marina Hyde. Should have thought of this. <laughs> Somebody who really is, is sort of responsible, whether you like it or not, for illustrating everybody else's frustration with this clan car on fire of a government. Um, and you do it so, so well. We love it. We love it. We love it. We need more. No pressure. But I just wondered how you climb out of the headspace, um, the horrifying headspace of the dystopia, you know. I got to a point in COVID where I had to click off Radio 4 because it was just getting me down so much. And I ended up listening to Totally Radio 70s on the internet, (laughs) which is like an Australian yacht rock station. The only way that I could survive was by listening to things like 10cc and um, peter frampton show me the way on on sort of loopy repeat so i just I, this is probably a really facile question but i just wondered how you managed to step away or if you managed to step away from the madness and uh, you know w- what those escape hatches are for you Okay, before Marina answers that, can I just say there's nothing wrong with with playing 10cc no, and, there Pe- isn't. and Peter Frampton no, all, all the time because that's precisely <laughs> what I do. Um, but that's interesting, escape hatches. Marina. That, it's really, I have to say that a lot of people, a lot of people I know have turned off the news, and especially during COVID, exactly have gone through exactly what Sean, who I also love, um, I love you right back, Sean, what the, the things that he's had to do, a lot of people have taken steps to protect their mental health, as it were, in that way. I have to say that the fact, the act of writing the columns has been quite, dare I say, quite therapeutic, because in a way... I don't have unresolved news issues because you have to write it down. Don't therapists always tell you to write things down? And I think that my job is a sort of mandated writing things down. So I tend to write it and feel better at the end of it simply because you sort of have to work through it, as it were. And there's something about trying to think up a joke particularly that suits it, that has the tone right, that has whatever. And there is a sort of, when you sort of hit on it, you think, oh, okay, not that's brilliant, but that'll do, that, that works. And the act of doing that is quite therapeutic and it is quite cathartic. So the the act of writing the columns has helped me with my news issues. So that is, it, so in a way, this... the, the column is the escape hatch. Yeah, oh, right. In a way, yeah. And I have to say that I never know what I'm going to write when I sit down to write and I never know what I think about things. And it's, I only know, I never start at the beginning. I don't have a through line that I'm going to begin with and like some conceit that I'm then going to advance and then tie it up in a bow at the end. I actually only realise about two thirds of the way moving it all around the page and think, oh, I see, that's what I think. And then that's why sometimes in my columns right at the end you get that needle scratch. (laughs) Here's the serious bit because I've worked out by then what I think. So the act of writing is the escape hatch. 
I think it's so interesting. I, I, we've um, had Lee Child on the sh- on the podcast a number of times, and he just sits down and writes and doesn't have a plan beforehand. Just yeah. writes, and I'm so envious of that yeah. of being able to do uh, of being able to do that. A related question then to what we've just heard from Sean is: Is there a book you turn to that cheers you up? That you know, if you're feeling down, I'm going to have. 20 minutes reading this and it's going to be a blast. Well, I tell you what, then I would go back to what I said earlier, which is Woodhouse. Even if you're just going to dip in and open any single page, you can. if you've got 20 minutes, open it up and read 20 pages and you'll you'll just think this is a sort of... It's it's The writing is so tight. There are funny books. There's funny things. Like the first, I don't know, 20 pages of um, Brett Easton Ellis. Which one am I thinking of? Why has it gone right out of my head? American Psycho. No, well, you, that, although very good. The first 20 pages of um, the one that came after Glamorama. Imperial no, before, between <laughs> Glamorama and Imperial Bedrooms. What the hell has happened there? But it's so far, it's a sort of riff on himself, really. Um, you know, the one where it's like a sort of homage to a sort of Stephen King novel, really. Um, it's so brilliant. And I can't believe I've forgotten it. You see well, that? Joe, the producer, is now online and he's it's between he... Glamorama and, and Imperial Bedrooms. Okay. Um, You're going to come up with an Luna answer. Park. My God, thank God I thought of it because otherwise I would get really Luna worried. Park. I'm losing my mind. Yeah, Luna Park. The first 20 pages of that are so kind of like a jewel. They're so brilliantly written. There's a quite a lot of sort of intros to books that I'll read that make me sort of howl with laughter. Julian Fellow's Snobs, the first sort of 50 pages, just a complete howl. Um, and there's lots of sort of weird things like that that I'll go and read them again because I've only got a little bit of time and you'll just think that's pretty well done. <laughs> Marina Hyde talking to us about her book, What Just Happened? Next, our old friend Anthony Horowitz, who joined us in September, his third appearance on the pod, uh, to talk about the twist of a knife. We also talked about the pros and cons of social media and about how thick-skinned or not he is when it comes to reviews. I think you're on social media less than you used to be. Is that because the temper of many of these conversations is a bit vitriolic. Well, social media is responsible for so much harm in our society because it reduces things to black or white, good or evil, yes or no, and nothing in between. And I do get a little bit put out by some of the responses you get for even the mildest sort of comment uh, about sociology, about life, about politics or whatever. So I'm not less on on, on Twitter I'm still there, but I use it now almost 95% exclusively for books, just books. Readers contact me, I contact them back and say thank you for reading me, and not much else. And I do think that that social media has become quite boring in a way, because nobody now dares really uh, have any sort of real discussion at all. You know, I'm sure yourself, Simon, irony, sarcasm politics, opinions are all very dangerous if expressed in 280 characters or whatever it is you're now allowed. So so you're correct. I, I don't now use it in any way except for sort of the, you know, and, and don't get me wrong, I, I, I don't describe that. I, I have followers who, who, who tweet me about my books and I'm always very happy to hear from them. And to, and to try and be helpful where I can. People ask me favours on, on that. Can you sign a book? Can you visit my school? Can you do this? Can you do that? And if I can, I will. I saw you do an interview uh, about the book, Anthony. I think it was on ITV, actually, on ITN News. And you, you described yourself as thin-skinned. That was, I think you, you said that that was true. And I just thought that's just so interesting when you've written a book about um, 
a theatre critic being murdered that that you felt have I mean have you have you always been thin skinned are you more thin skinned than you used to be or are you tougher than you used to be I think I'm the same. I don't think I've changed at all. I mean, you know the old cliche about writers only for remembering, remembering the bad reviews. You get 17 good reviews and one bad one. The one bad one is one that sticks with you. And I, I, I think that I've been working so hard, Simon, to try and make my books good. You know, I could write bad books now if I wanted to. I mean, I could just relax and not bother because at the end of the day, I could write an Alex Ryder book and the market is sort of there for it. But with every Alex Ryder book, with every Hawthorne book, with every series book, whether it's or every continuation book, I just work so bloody hard to try and get it right that when someone comes along and just says, actually, nope, didn't like it, it sort of hurts. I mean, it, it sort of feels... It feels strangely um, personal. Um, but so it's not quite about being thin-skinned. It's just about feeling, uh, really? I mean, did you have to say that? Is that really what you think? And and sort of, it's almost sort of not understanding why the critic or why the person on social media has been so nasty. Uh, not that they're always nasty, incidentally, but also negative, that's the word. Yeah. So I have, I just, I just got one more question uh, Andy, you 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 were talking about you enjoy you mentioned Stephen King uh and you, and uh, what a delight what an incredible book uh, that is about the on uh, on writing but just on your art form and can you lift the curtain a little about the construction of such an intricate puzzle that you've described for us in twist of a knife because it is it is a book which should i guess was writ- i think was written with relish Certainly, will be read with relish. But the, does the does the puzzle occur to you? In does it come fully formed, or do you work it out as you go along? What is what can you tell us about that construction? Well, I always think of it as a bit like a dartboard. I start with somebody killing somebody else for a reason. A plus B equals C. All crime fiction, all whodunit fiction, is based on that very simple premise: A is one person, B is the other person, C is the reason why A kills B. Now, as soon as you come up with an interesting motive, and that's where everything starts for me, the motive, I think, in The Twist of a Knife for the murder is actually quite a fun one and quite an interesting one. That's what makes whodunits work, incidentally. It's not the intricacy of the plotting or the cleverness of the clues. It is actually about the human nature of the murder. My favourite, or one of my favourite Alex, uh, Agatha Christie books, is um, The Mirror Crack from Side to Side, because the motive in it is so every day, so common, so recognisable, and so understandable. I think I've said before that that we should always have a sort of modicum of sympathy for the killer, because they're not mad people. They're people who have problems and people who are bad people, possibly, but they are nonetheless often scared or lonely. And in, in The Twist of a Knife, when the killer is finally identified, it is with a certain degree of sadness arc creeps into that final chapter. Um, so I start with the centre of the core. Having now said A plus B, A is one person. If it's a, a cook, then I need to start thinking about the restaurant where that person might work and the people that they work with. And then and, and I need to sort of understand that world. And if the person they murder is, shall we say, a food critic in this case, then I start ex- exploring that area and thinking about that person. And as I build around these people, 
I am building the dartboard all the way out to the double twenties. And so it's a sort of a circular motion. So having got, shall we say, this food critic, the food critic is married. The person who he is married or she is married to may hate them. So that's a second motive for the murder. And then you begin to see that that person who they are married to might have a connection, you know, with somebody else in the dartboard. And so you just sort of begin to draw it. I think I probably spend about four months thinking, planning, drawing doodles, scribbling in notebooks, asking myself questions. Why did this person order the, you know, how, or what, or, 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 yeah, why did the person order the food? That's a clue. They were a vegetarian, so why did they order the sausage roll? You know, that sort of thing. And then you begin to play with that and think about it. Um, in my new book, somebody, uh, uh, the, that exact clue more or less appears. The one I'm talking about, um, Close to Death, has a character who is a vegetarian. So why is there a McDonald's straw in his desk, a, a straw out of the McDonald's hamburger chain? Uh, and that, to me, is a great clue, and it works in the story. So that's jotted down in ingredients. And I sort of build it all, as I say, in a circular way. And then I finally start to write it. And of course, when I write it, I can change everything. I can and go back on myself and plant new clues and reseed it. But I can't begin unless I have 10, 20 pages of notes in my book for how the book is going to be. Anthony Horowitz there, who joined us back in September. And finally, here's one of our favourite moments from when Jodie Pico and Jennifer Finney Boylan came to the studio to talk about their novel Mad Honey. Here they are telling us about their writing process and about characters. You've explained, Jennifer, a bit about who wrote what, but it's got to be more complicated than that because you need to have... Re readers don't want to have, oh, this is this part of the book and this is another part of the book. How did you get a uniform style where it feels as though it's one story? That was really important to us. I didn't want it to feel like two voices fighting each other. So one of the first things that I think we had to do as writers was really learn more about how we go about the act of writing, which when you write a novel by yourself, you don't do. You sit down and you do the work, you know, but you don't analyze what kind of writer you are. And Jenny and I are very, very different writers. I, for example, learned I am a massive control freak. She's a massive I, control I freak. I, I can say that out loud now. And oh, my I, God. I'm the one who had to keep the document on my computer, on and computer. I had to plug Jenny's chapters into it. And it was, you know, I don't know why, but it worked for me. You don't sound like a natural collaborator. It worked, <laughs> no, no, it worked no. for you just fine, yeah. didn't it? <laughs> hey, I you, was look, like, at, look at that beautiful book. I it worked like, for everybody. Jody, can I have a copy of our book, please? <laughs> But that was part of it. The other part of it was I am very much a plotter. I organize, I outline. Jenny is what in the writing community we call a pantser, what meaning you call a pantser. I do call a pantser. I call it's a what writer. you <laughs> what you you fly by the seat of your pants, you know. But this is ultimately this is a book about many things. It's also a courtroom drama and a murder mystery, and you can't get to the end of the book and be like, I don't know who did it. Oh, <laughs> How would we know who yeah. did it? So you've got to plan that yeah, stuff out. Which and we so did. We had a massive outline. It was also important to write an outline because chapter one is Olivia's chapter and it follows you through a day where Olivia's beekeeping and it ends with her getting a call from her son, Asher, who says Lily's dead and he's being questioned by the police. The second chapter is in Jenny's voice, which is Lily, the girl who's been murdered. And it's the same day, but it's her last hours. And it ends just before you find out what happens. Someone knocks on the door right. and she's, I wonder who that is. And so at that point now, you go back to Olivia in the next chapter and you move forward a little through this investigation and you continue all the way through to the end of the, of the timeline. But Lily's already dead. And we already have fallen in love with Lily. So Jenny's chapters continue to move backwards through time 
so that we learn about the past year that Lily has spent, basically, in this town where she recently moved. And we learn more about her as we go further back Right. And life. whose idea was it that my chapters would mm. go backwards? Absolutely my idea. <laughs> that because, was your idea. Yeah, I have written books yeah. in reverse, and they are horrible, and I will never do that again. Yeah. So I decided Jenny should do it. <laughs> yeah, Jody, I said, I can't do that. Jody said, don't worry, you'll do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, now, before Matt comes in, I just want to ask an awkward question, I think, because... There is a plot reveal about halfway through the book, which in ordinary circumstances we wouldn't discuss because it is a plot reveal. So explain the plot reveal which comes in halfway through. Well, I'm, uh, at least in the States, a pretty well-known uh, transgender activist. And my books generally deal with trans issues. And the fact that there's a trans element in this book should come as no surprise to people who are familiar with my work. And uh, we won't say which character or to whom this refers, but there is a reveal. You find out that there is, this is an element um, at large in the book. So now we're talking about trans stuff, which shouldn't be awkward, but I think sometimes can be awkward because people lack the, is it the vocabulary? Is it the sympathy? There's there's something around trans issues, which, and not particularly in this country, but at least at this particular moment in in the UK, uh, feels very fraught. And one of the things that we hope this book will do is to take away some of the electricity and allow people to have a little more compassion and understanding. Because it's one of the great things that fiction can do, is that you fall in love with characters, you come to sympathize with them and understand them, so it's it's almost as if your heart is opened uh, against your will or with, while you're not noticing it. It is worth also saying that every character in this book is in the stage of, of reinventing themselves, of revising themselves in some way. Ultimately, what you should be leaving this book with is a sense that we all have much more in common than we don't. And there's this running theme throughout the book, I think, about the difference between what is secret and what is private. What do we owe the people that we love? What do we have to tell them about our past? What about the past makes us who we are today? And do we ever get to jettison parts of our past that we don't like anymore? And again, that has really nothing to do with gender or identity or anything like that. If you are like Olivia, someone who is in an abusive marriage, is that something you need to disclose to another partner? You know, when you find a new relationship, if you had an abortion when you were 16, do you need to tell somebody that? Like, at what point do you get to control those facets of your life? And that, honestly, we've been on tour now forever. Jenny and I are forever. forever. (laughs) And so, honestly, every audience that we've talked about this with, they all go, they're nodding. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Everyone knows what you're talking about when you say, What was it that was somewhere inside of you, something in your heart that you couldn't let out because you were afraid it would change people's impressions of you? Everyone has a moment like that. Secrets are always that thing, aren't they, that that Mm -hmm. unlock a story. But I wonder whether, was it it must have been a conscious decision that you both took to say, um, because there's no no mention of uh, a trans character on on the fly. If you were to pick up this book not knowing anything about either of you as authors... There is nothing that says that at all. And as Simon has pointed out, it's, it's, it's like 200 pages in mm-hmm. before we find out that one of the characters is trans. And I wondered whether that was a deliberate call by, by both of you as you were writing. You, you were thinking, we want to write a book where the reader 
is engaging with these characters and this story have bought into that mm -hmm. before we start talking about, as you say, an issue that um, some people find awkward, some people find uncomfortable. Was that something that you both said to each other, let's tell this story first? I don't think we had to tell each other that. <laughs> and here's why. Because what you said is exactly true. You will fall in love with every character in this book. You are going to uh, root for them. Almost all. Almost all. That's true. You're going to root for them. You're going to struggle with them. And ultimately, I think in both of our hearts, we know that no human being is an issue. So when we say trans issues, and I have my air quotes up right now, mm. we're talking about human beings who are just trying to live life like everybody else. And that is what we wanted to remind everybody of. We wanted you to see every character in here as a human being first and foremost. Whatever you choose to layer on after that, hopefully will cause you to, you know, sort of step back and go, oh, wait a second, I made a value judgment and I don't know why I assume that about that person. And I like this person. Maybe maybe the fact that they were transitioned at some point. Maybe that has nothing to do with how I feel about them. So, yes, you're modeling that behavior, which is actually what I think everyone should be doing every day in the world. It's, it's also worth saying this is not this is not a book that is yeah. only about trans issues. This is I mean, there's there is that element. But to the extent that it's a book about trans issues, it's it connects to the way in which trans issues are turns out very similar mm -hmm. to a number of issues, as Jody was saying, things that we are afraid to tell other people because we don't have the language, because we are afraid of how people might react, because we don't have the courage to let something uh, that is private within ourselves out into the world. And as it turns out, that is a universal thing that I think we all share, that everyone has has that. And all the characters in this book have some variation of that issue in their lives. So uh, it was part of the strategy. I mean, you you really did crystallize it quite well there. I mean, you, maybe you had the dream with Jodie. Um, <laughs> Everyone's going to have a dream about Jodie now. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait. Yeah, I like that. I want, just want someone to have a dream about but me. But also, Matt, it's worth saying, nowhere in the flyleaf does it say that Olivia is right-handed. Did that mm. bother you? There you go, yeah. There's a line, in fact, there were a couple of lines huh. that I wrote down. But I underlined them in the book. Well, I, I hope like... they were mine. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's one each, I think. But to be honest, I think you make it clear that sometimes you've interfered with each other's chapters. Well, that's, yeah. the, that's the thing. And you know. we, should, we should say that I wrote the Lily chapters, Jody wrote the Olivia chapters. However, we switched chapters. Each of us did the other's character one for, for one time. Yeah. And in part because we thought it was just good practice for writers to inhabit all the characters, but also because we wanted the readers to kind of try to figure that out. It's a little a little puzzle for you. So here's, here's the line that I wrote down. It comes from Olivia. What if I don't understand? Because Olivia is who is who's the mother in the book, who's the first uh, of the point of view characters. What if I don't understand? If you want to understand something, you need to accept the fact of your own ignorance. And I thought, OK, that's quite an interesting... So here is someone who is an understanding person who thinks that they've got it, but actually is beginning to realise that actually they haven't got a clue. Mm -hmm. Fair? Yeah, is that, that's is that you, totally that accurate. Um, I, I'm not going to answer that. I want, I, want to hear, I want to hear the other <laughs> yeah, one, and then we'll the tell you. Which <laughs> okay. The other line, which I, I suspect you've been asked about before, the plumbing works and so does the electricity. That's now, again, can, can that be discussed in the context of not giving the book away? <laughs> <laughs> Just in general terms. 
What was your question about that line? <laughs> well, other than other than that, it's really good. Other than it is. <laughs> oh right. What does it tell us? Well, as a transgender woman, I can tell you, people want to know: Does everything about one's body function in the way it ought? And the answer is the hell yes. <laughs> That's all you need. And that was Jennifer Finney Boylan and Jody Pico. Mad Honey is their book. And that's it. It's our best of books of the year for 2022. We'll be taking... I mean, it's not really a break. We're just not around for a bit. I mean, it's a week, literally that. Yes. 11th of January is when we're back, which is barely a holiday. Uh, We're going to be welcoming American novelist and poet Jason Mott to talk about his award-winning novel... Hell of a book. And we'll also be joined in January by actor, comedian, writer, podcaster, performer, Cariad Lloyd, uh, to discuss her new book, You Are Not Alone. So I hope you can join us then for more books of the year. I hope you have a fantastic Christmas, very happy new year. I hope you enjoy some fabulous books. And get in touch. Let us know what has really worked for you and get in touch with the programme by emailing booksoftheyear at yahoo.com. Excellent. And social media, if you want. If you're on oh, social yes. media, get on that. Uh, at Books of the Year on the Twitter and on the Instagram, which I've stingingly failed to get onto Instagram, but it's where all the cool kids are. It's at Pick Any Page. That's at Pick Any Page. Boost your skin with new Hemp's Beauty Actives. These body lotions combine high-powered ingredients with our signature best-selling formula and amazing scents to meet your unique skin needs. Choose from brightening vitamin C, hydrating hyaluronic acid, plant-based bakuchiol, an anti-aging retinol alternative, or firming ceramides plus B3. All are vegan and cruelty-free and hydrate with 100% pure hemp seed oil. Now available at hemps.com, Ulta Beauty, and other retailers.